Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, I was in uh, Florida over the weekend. You're in Germany now. You know, basically the same thing, right? <laughs> Similar vibes. Slightly different political vibes. Uh, Boca and Berlin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I'm here with our old boss. Uh, we did a we just did a two and a half hour round table with young leaders. It was kind of inspiring, actually. How many How many leaders? We had 18 uh, from like across Europe, people trying to do the right thing, trying to fix things that are broken. So that, that made you feel a little bit better about things. That's cool. Oh, so 18 kids from across. When you say young, like what's young these days? I mean, actually, like the young is like in your 30s, right? Like these are people like we had like a member of the European Parliament. We've got people fighting corruption in Hungary. We've got people. We've had a couple of Pots of the World guests. Um, nice. The woman who does uh, Hannah, who runs a Green New Deal in the UK. Like we, we, we had some good mix of activists and people in politics. It was great. Excellent. That's a great group. I wish. Uh, next time, let's just bring the mic to the roundtable. I know you feel. I was singing that. Like well, a good number of them said that to me. There, we had some worldos in the in the crowd today. So, like, it's not a bad idea. Next time, we'll just stream the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, we have a great show. Uh, we have a great show for everyone today. We're going to keep talking about this ongoing crisis in Sudan. How the Pope is trying to make peace in Ukraine. Really interesting story over the weekend about his travels to Budapest. King Charles's coronation is coming up. There's an old but new phone hacking scandal for Rupert Murdoch, a big election, set of elections in Turkey, the latest on the Pentagon Discord leaks. A star was born, Ben, at the uh, Korean state visit in Washington. And then Ron DeSantis's foreign trip seems to have gone a little south. Th- that, that's the window from here. I, I think that's fair to say. I, I, I heard you guys kind of deliver a few like body blows on Pod Save America, and I'm, I'm happy to try to finish off Ron DeSantis here on Pod Save America. <laughs> Are you saying he hasn't electrified Germany uh, no, no, in the, no. the press over there? Not exactly. No, it's not, no, no. It's not like a, a lingering sense of... It's funny, actually, I'm staying in the hotel that we stayed at during the 2008 foreign trip when Obama spoke to like 250,000 people here. And let's just say that there's not a similar vibe that Ron DeSantis left behind here. There's more like a, a stench. Yeah, Ron, Ron DeSantis, he could get 25 people at the Brandenburg Gate, not yeah, yeah, 200,000. Exactly. Yeah. Well, well, that's the new section for us. And then you will hear my interview with President Biden's Deputy National Security Advisor, Mike Pyle, about the Biden administration's international economic agenda. There was a very interesting speech uh, that Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, gave. Was that last week? It feels like a million years yeah, ago. But it yeah. was laid out their whole sort of international economic agenda uh, in a smart way. So we're going to talk about that. But Ben, let's start in Sudan. 
because uh, the situation there seemed to be getting worse by the day. As we discussed last week, there has been this power struggle between the Sudanese military, led by General Abdel Fattah al-Burnham, uh, and a paramilitary force called the RSF, led by another general known as Hameti. Um, this has turned into an all-out civil war. Over the past several days, there have been some partial ceasefires that have helped people escape the cities and escape some of the fighting, but have not really been ceasefires. I mean, there's been, you know, like literally airstrikes in Khartoum during the ceasefires. So um, it's still incredibly unsafe. The World Health Organization says that at least 500 civilians have been killed in the fighting. That is almost certainly a drastic undercount. At least 50,000 people have left Sudan since the fighting started. And the UN Assistant High Commissioner for Refugees said they are planning for a scenario where up to 815,000 people flee Sudan into its neighboring countries. So that's just a massive exodus. Uh, millions are still trapped in, in Khartoum. Reuters reported that some people have even walked 250 miles to South Sudan to escape the fighting. Most others are, are getting out by taking a, a very dangerous 500-mile drive to the port of Sudan, where they then can escape via boat if they're lucky. The U.S. has organized at least three convoys to help evacuate over 1,000 U.S. citizens from Sudan. The Saudi government is also evacuating a ton of people. I think they've gotten 5,000 people out of many different nationalities. That obviously does nothing for the Sudanese people who are trapped and have nowhere to go. And the New York Times reported that Sudan's healthcare system is on the brink of collapse. The World Food Program said 16% of the food it had stockpiled in the country has been stolen. And that wasn't enough to begin with to feed the population that's already struggling because of a bunch of failed rainy seasons. So, you know, the latest is Hamedi told Western media that, you know, the military is being controlled by Islamist leaders. He says that he and the RSF believe in, in democracy and civilian control of the government. I think we have a lot of reasons to be skeptical of those sorts of claims from a warlord. But um, fingers crossed that maybe that will you know, lead him to negotiate and do something decent. The former Sudanese prime minister, uh, Abdullah Hamdak, said that he warned that the war could turn out worse than Syria and Libya because uh, this is not a war between an army and a small rebellion. It is almost like two armies, was his quote. And he's right. right? These are two like incredibly well-armed armies. So before we started uh, recording, Ben, the UN's top envoy in Sudan said the two sides have agreed to negotiate finally. Just curious if you're seeing any signs that you're reading in the press or anywhere else that those talks are real this time, have a hope of succeeding, or are these going to be kind of on again, off again, ceasefires? I mean, I, I think it feels really bad, Tommy. I mean, you summarized it well. I mean, first of all, the only thing that, as you point out, the only thing that seems to kind of diminish the fighting for periods of time is like coordinated evacuations of foreigners, um, yeah. which on the one end, it's good that, you know, there is a capacity to like, you know, pull a lever and reduce levels of violence and to coordinate with both of these sides to get people out. The bad thing about that, in a way, is there's almost like a feeling that the foreigners are leaving so that the civil war can kind of go on, you know, that like yep. they know yep. that they're getting ready for like a really intense and protracted civil war. And so they're kind of allowing for foreigners to get out of the way so that that's not an element that they have to worry about. So that that concerns me. The other thing that concerns me is that if you listen to the rhetoric from the two sides, like it's kind of zero sum, right? So Hekmeti, the kind of warlord who, um, you know, controls upwards of 100,000 people um, in arms, uh, including like remnants of the Janjaweed militias that carried out the, the genocide in Darfur. Um, you know, he's talking about, you know, the army being fatally compromised by this Islamist presence. It has echoes and nothing's like a direct parallel, but 
it's kind of like has these echoes of Libya where you had, you know, you have a warlord Heftar in Libya who was also backed by the Emiratis in the same way that, that they backed this guy in Sudan, um, taking on Islamists. And then you have a military that, you know, the, there's nothing that suggests that the Sudanese military wants to relinquish its control over the state. So it's kind of zero sum for both sides, because if one side concedes to the other, uh, you have to think that's that's it for them in Sudanese politics. And it just feels like this is heading in a bad direction. And and honestly, like those estimates, usually, you know, they can end up being on the low end, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So 800,000 could be like a floor. Um, now, hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully there's a ceasefire that can hold and lead to a political process. But like right now, I think if we're looking at this candidly, it does not look good. Yeah. And it's just the suffering is just compounding because Sudan has been a place that is, I think, taken in a lot of refugees from places like Yemen. And these individuals are now being driven out sort of anywhere they can go. And, you know, a, a million refugees flowing into any country could be destabilizing. But, you know, flowing into to a neighbor like Libya or Chad or South Sudan, you know, countries that have been sort of struggling on their own in part because of these five or six failed uh, rainy seasons in the Horn of Africa, like that seems completely unsustainable. It's also interesting that the U.S. went from a little more of a defensive position about like sort of their ability or, or inability or willingness to help get refugees out to leading all these convoys. I know I know what Jake Sullivan was saying when he was talking about the U.S. obligation to essentially rescue people from the Civil War was that like we can't like send in the military and get them out, but that we would try to help them. But it does seem like they've really sort of turned up the dial on, on getting folks out in the last week or two. No, they have. I mean, what's also clear is, I mean, I, I, I've heard from a, a few people that are either in Sudan or have family there and like everybody wants to leave, right? So this this connects to the first question because, you know, the people who kind of have the best sense of this are the people that are like living in the middle of it. And the people that are living in the middle of this want to get the hell out of Sudan, you know, whether they're American citizens or have U.S. you know, uh, green card status or whether they're just Sudanese who want to get out. And so I think the U.S. is responding to an enormous demand to get out. And so whatever structure you can put around that, this is not like military style evacuations like in Afghanistan. So the you know conversation we had last week holds in that the U.S. is not like they're militarily evacuating these people, but they can try to help facilitate evacuation routes, uh, right. try to help with processing paperwork and vehicles and that kind of thing. And it's it's pretty clear that like, you know what, like people don't want to stick around. And that yeah. that tells you what the the mood must feel like in Khartoum, which is that the people are hunkering down for a long conflict. Yeah, absolutely terrifying. Hopefully some of these these peace talks work and work quickly. Um, speaking of peace talks, Ben, so Pope Francis on Sunday said that the Vatican is working on a secret mission to stop the war between Russia and Ukraine. He revealed this to the Vatican press corps on a flight home from this three-day trip he took to Budapest, where Pope Francis discussed the war with uh, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban and a representative of the Russian Orthodox Church in Budapest. Previously, the Vatican has helped facilitate prisoner exchanges between the two sides. So I think there is some sort of, you know, like previous work to build on. While in Hungary, Pope Francis gave a speech to a crowd that included Orban, where he called on listeners to welcome migrants. Here's a quote. How sad and painful it is to see closed doors, the closed doors of our selfishness with regard to others, the closed doors of our individualism amid a society of growing isolation, the closed doors of our indifference towards the underprivileged and those who suffer, the doors we close towards those who are foreign or unlike us towards migrants or the poor. Pretty direct shot at Viktor Orban's immigration policies. Um, unfortunately, but I don't know if you saw this in New York Times. 
was there for the speech. They interviewed a bunch of Hungarians in the audience about the speech and sort of like their reaction to it. And a lot of them didn't really view it as a shot at Orban at all and generally seemed to support Orban's immigration policies and said, well, the fact that the Pope has been here three times now suggests that he really likes Orban. So a little dispiriting. But I don't know. What do you make of this um, high wire diplomacy here by Pope Francis? The whole thing was this was really interesting to me, uh, Tommy, because like Francis was clearly balancing the fact that he knows that going to Hungary um, validates Orban in a way. You know, Orban can sit there and there's the image of Francis coming to him. As you pointed out with the people in the audience, like the main thing that sticks with most people is just that Francis is there and he's there again. And you have a, a substantial Catholic population there. And Orban has cast himself as a you know kind of Christian nationalist, right? So Christianity is pretty central to the way in which Orban has built his political movement there, like a return to traditional Christian values, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Now, clearly Francis thought, I'll balance this out by like taking some shots. And he called out nationalism. He called out the immigration policy, like you said. And and look, I think that matters to an extent, but you know, Orban also kind of controls the media there, right? So if you're watching like television in Hungary, you're probably seeing the video of Francis kind of meeting with Orban and shaking his hand or whatever. And you're yeah, not really hear, you're not hearing the messages that he delivered. The only thing that I can think is that there's a history in Eastern Europe of the Catholic Church playing a kind of subversive role, right? Like so Pope John Paul, who was Polish, um, famously, you know, was like critical to the anti-communism movement of the 80s. Like the question is whether Francis's message reaches down through the church locally and like reaches people in that way. Um, and so in that way, it's kind of a longer game by Francis. But I, I think Orban's probably pretty comfortable with the visit for now. It, it does seem like Francis is getting older, right? He's had some health issues and it seems like he's yeah. really trying to like address his legacy and trying to like, he's speaking more openly and forthrightly about these issues. Cause again, he was pretty like outspoken in what he said about nationalism and migration. The thing that like jumps out, of course, is this kind of reference to peace talks. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I as someone who like dealt with the Vatican diplomatically, like they were the third party in our normalization of relations with Cuba, like I have tremendous respect for their capacity to be kind of a, a neutral party mediator. And, and and over the years, Francis has tried to build up ties to the Russian Orthodox Church, which is very close to Putin. But at the end of the day, Putin controls the Russian Orthodox Church. They've kind of become lackeys of him. Yeah. And, and so I think- And their commentary yeah. about Ukraine has been pretty bloodthirsty, I think, in the past. Let's just say not exactly like the men of the cloth that you and I would have no. like, like <laughs> yeah. justifying like yeah. war crimes, right? So like, I, I think in the short term or medium term, even like the best this could do is kind of, you know, like you said, prisoner exchanges, like facilitating kind of- humanitarian type agreements between different sides. Like the notion of the Vatican actually brokering like a peace deal, like seems pretty, pretty far-fetched to me at this point, but Hey, you know, like there's no reason not to try. Yeah. I respect the hell out of Pope Francis for trying. As you said, I think he's like 86 years old. He just had some health issues. So it's like amazing that he's out there taking these visits. I also saw Ben that there was a, a Russian oil depot in Crimea that went boom. Uh, the Ukrainians said that they hit it with the drone, I think, in preparation for this spring counteroffensive that we've all been waiting for for a while. It seems like maybe it'll start in May. Maybe it'll be a summer offensive and it'll slip to June. I mean, I, I think listening to some military experts, it seems like 
from a Ukrainian perspective, the longer they wait, the more time they have to get stuff like, you know, American tanks and German tanks into the country. So unfortunately for, you know, these peace talk efforts, it seems like we're about to see the war ramp up, not ramp down. Yeah, I think there's no way on earth that there's any substantive peace talks before this Ukrainian offensive. Um, I mean, there's just so much has been building to it, so much momentum. You know, first of all, the Ukrainians are are currently taking a position that they're not going to negotiate until Russia is completely out of their territory, right? Including Crimea. Uh, I think at a minimum, there's no way the Ukrainians would want to enter in any negotiation without taking back a pretty good chunk of additional territory that Russia's claimed, right? So particularly like breaking, you know, that land bridge between Eastern Ukraine and Crimea. So Southern mm-hmm. Ukraine around like Mariupol, they're not going to want to sit down and, and have peace talks as, uh, having lost territory since the in- Russian invasion. Uh, so everything is kind of waiting for this offensive. I, I I do think like, you know, we, you and I were like going back and forth on the Atlantic piece about this, where Jeffrey Goldberg and, and Applebaum sat with um, Zelensky and kind of the senior Ukrainian leadership. What was interesting about that is that they their their rhetoric in that piece was, hey, we, we're not even going to need to take Crimea. Like there are going to be these kind of, you know, one-off strikes and we're going to so decisively beat Russia in other places that Crimea will naturally kind of you know fall back into our um, sovereignty. You never know what's disinformation. <laughs> like, and I don't mean mm-hmm. this in like a negative sense. Like, if I was Ukrainians, no, no. if I was Ukrainians, I would be telegraphing that the offensive's coming in precisely the place that it's not. You know, which is what they did last time, right? They they said they were going to do a, a major offensive in Kherson, and then they did this lightning offensive in the north around Kharkiv. I only say that to make the point that like. We, have, we don't know whether Crimea is in their crosshairs right now or not. And they have every reason, and I support it, to kind of confuse us all about what they're going to do. That's funny you said that. I, I've not read that long Atlantic piece yet because it's it's hefty. Um, yeah. But I had, the same thought, I had the same thought when I saw them say, oh, yeah, we struck this oil depot in Crimea as part of our counteroffensive. I was like, huh, is this a head fake? Yeah. Is this a real deal? Is this just hitting supplies? Like, I don't know. We'll, we'll all find out. We'll very, find very out soon, when we find out. Exactly. Yeah, we'll finally find out. Uh, speaking of big events coming up, Ben, uh, the coronation of King Charles III will happen this Saturday, May 6th at Westminster Abbey. Uh, that is a spot where coronations have taken place since the year 1066. I mean, it's a long time. That's a long so time. I scrolled through about 42 pages of the details that they released. The Archbishop of Canterbury released about the event. It's going to be quite a quite an event for you know an audience of, I think, 2,000 people in the room Millions more watching on TV. The last coronation was of Queen Elizabeth II in 1953, so it's been a minute. Uh, British citizens have been invited to formally participate in the service by reciting from home, as they watch on television, a new homage of the people, which goes as follows, quote, I swear that I will pay true allegiance to your majesty and to your heirs and successors according to law, so help me God. So fun, lucky them for getting to say that out loud. Uh, For the first time, female bishops and members of other faiths will participate in the service. That's cool. The king and queen will literally travel back to Buckingham Palace from the coronation in a 200-year-old gilded horse-drawn carriage called the Gold State Coach. One challenge for King Charles to be and the the future of the monarchy is that polling suggests that most British citizens don't really care about the coronation. YouGov did a poll that found 64% of British adults surveyed had little or no interest in the ceremony. Uh, Prince Harry will be attending, Meghan Markle will not. Ben, what's your take on this event? You're a royal, a royal correspondent here. 
How important do you think this is to when it comes to maintaining support for the monarchy in the UK? And do you plan on uh, tuning in to like what, 3 a.m. Pacific time when it starts? So first of all, as part of my royal correspondent duties, um, on my way out here to Europe, I had a layover in Newark and I hit the, uh, you know, the, the United Club Lounge bar, you know, uh-huh. um, and they had a coronation special like, uh, Come on. no, they did. It was called like the coronation special and, and it was like a Pim's cup, right? If you ever had those and I love those. The, the, they're pretty delicious actually. But what was funny is like the bartender, like somebody asked for a coronation special and the, the, <laughs> the poor woman who's a bartender, right? Who doesn't even like really get tips, right? Cause she's the bartender in the club is like, what the hell is that? Like what the, and she like turned to somebody <laughs> else and like, what the hell is coronate? Like core, not like, and they're like, oh, it's uh the king, uh, the new king in England. And like, nobody had any idea, like clearly some like mastermind of like the United lounges was like, we yeah. have a course. Nobody knew what this thing was, you know? Um, th- let's just say that like, that would not have been the case with Charles and Diana's wedding or with like Queen Elizabeth's yeah. coronation. Like, totally. I just don't think people around the world are waiting with bated breath for the coronation of King Charles. First point. Especially not in Newark. Yeah, especially not in Newark, drink a, right? Let's be drink clear. a fucking beer, kid. Get, yeah, get they out just, of way. just get a beer. The second thing is the, there's a cost of living crisis in the UK, right? Like inflation is is a pain uh-huh. in the ass to people. Like, I, I don't know that the 200-year-old gilded carriage is like the way to connect with the people amidst the cost of living crisis. So they're going to have to be- mention that it's air conditioned? Because well, it is. There you go. Like they're gonna have to be a little <laughs> careful here in knowing the royals. They're probably not gonna be that careful in 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 like the the lavish kind of opulence of their subsidized lives is gonna be on display. So like there are risks here too. Like they're probably looking at the upside, right? Like everybody feels this pride and this connection to history that goes back to 1066. And a lot of Brits will feel that. Like we saw this when Queen Elizabeth died. Like there's a weird like connection, obviously, to the monarchy that's hard for us to understand as Americans. I have to think some people are going to look at this though and be like, how much does this cost? You know, like this seems right. like a little extravagant. Um, now, what's in it for them is you don't get that many moments to try to like break through and connect with the public. And so how this goes, how Charles comports himself, how you know, Harry, whether he shows up and talks to his brother, like everybody's going to watch all this stuff really closely. Let's just say that if they screw this up, like they don't get another shot at it, you know? So I actually think there's like some stakes involved here, you know? Yeah. Not until his funeral. It is. Imagine just being, you're Australian (laughs) and you're like, one day you wake up and now King Charles is the head of state for Australia. And you're like, wait, what? How are we still doing this? What, this guy's happening? the head of state. I mean, look, I, I, and it's no disrespect to Charles. He's like, you know, has admirable qualities, but like, I, I, I keep looking at like the the British pounds I have, like Queen Elizabeth all over the money. I'm like, is 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 Charles going to be on all this money? Like, are, how are people going to feel about that? Like, yeah, how are people in Canada and Australia going to feel about him being the head of state? I mean, I, I really do. And it's, again, it's not a shot at this guy. I mean, the Queen had some other stuff going for her, above all that she'd kind of been around forever. Um, I do wonder whether more Commonwealth countries are going to go, you know, the the way of their own exit, you <laughs> know, not, not not Brexit, yeah. but like a monarchy exit. I think we might see, you know, the next five years or so, some more countries be like, ah, eh, you know, we might move to not have the monarch of the sure. UK be our you know, head of state. Yeah, uh, and by the way, if you want much more and probably a lot smarter commentary on uh, things going on in the UK, politics in the UK, check out Pod Save the UK. Subscribe now. The official launch is May fourth. 
But the hosts, uh, Nish Kumar and Coco Khan, they recorded a special episode, uh, Ben, with me, Favreau, and Lovett. I saw so it. they could just basically, <laughs> they taught us hilarious British slang, like chat shit, get banged. Have you heard that before? Yeah. I, I, first of all, those people are really, like, not only are they like smart, but they, they're really funny. And, uh, they're so funny. Uh, yeah. I, I love British slang, but I had not heard that. I mean, chat shit, I, get banged. I mean, I, and, and, you know, where I come from, that, that has some other meanings that, you know, um, but uh, like, yeah, totally. People need to check this out because these are the right people to host this show. Like, I'm really excited that like we have such amazing hosts doing that. Some people are calling uh, Nish and Coco the greatest British export since Love Island. So, you know, stay tuned for that. And by some people, I mean very me. Um, ben, so speaking of the royal family, uh, I noticed that there was a recent court filing where Prince Harry alleged that Rupert Murdoch's British newspaper group had paid, quote, a huge sum of money to Prince William back in 2020 to settle a cell phone hacking case, presumably of, of William's phone at some point along the way. Harry's bringing this case against the Sun newspaper and other tabloids for hacking into his voicemail at some point. Listeners might recall that back in the day, the Sun hacked uh, and released voicemail messages between Prince Charles and his then mistress, Camilla Parker Bowles, when they were having an affair. I will spare you the details of some of the most atrocious, <laughs> awkward, dirty talk you've ever heard. In the history, of, hum- in the history of humanity. Uh, I yeah, mean, yeah. rereading it, I was just like, Jesus <laughs> yeah, Christ, I, I can't. I, like, I wrote it out and I deleted it. Yeah. Um, but it was interesting to read about that case, knowing that he's going to the, to the coronation, and then to read a report in, in Semaphore that Rupert Murdoch had called Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky earlier this year. Lachlan Murdoch spoke to Zelensky, too. There was some speculation uh, about whether they discussed Tucker Carlson's views on the war. If that got him fired, some of us said they did not. But anyway, the whole thing was just, it was weird. It was a throwback. What's old is new again. Murdoch's in the news. It's just odd. First of all, the the whole concept that they, like, basically is a business model, like, hacking into people's voicemails is insane. Like, that's just yeah. something like, you know, like a lot of the ugliness in British media Thanks to Rupert Murdoch has like crossed the pond over here to the US, but like like that not not that I'm aware of in the hacking voicemails thing. But like the 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 Zelensky thing did jump out to me. And it it's the kind of thing that like drives me fucking crazy about Rupert Murdoch and, and Lachlan Murdoch as the kind of you know Kendall Roy CEO mm-hmm. bros um in charge now. Because every now and then you'll see these stories like, oh, Rupert Murdoch didn't like you know, Trump's election denials and Rupert Murdoch's uncomfortable with like, you know, the stance that people on Fox are taking on Ukraine. Well, like you fucking own Fox News, bro. <laughs> so like if you really yeah. wanted to change this, like you could do something other than calling Zelensky and telling him like you're with him, right? Like what would be more important to Zelensky and the Ukrainians is to not let a bunch of like America first, like nativist, xenophobic, isolationist garbage be on your airways all day and like sure fi- firing tucker carlson's like a first step but we all know that's like, like a drop in the bucket of what needs to happen to fox so like the fact that i don't know the fact that murdoch felt compelled enough to like join the kind of cavalcade of celebrities and ceos who like go kiss the Zelensky ring tells you that he felt kind of peer pressure in his own circles to like mm-hmm. do this outreach but i don't for a minute think that it means that rupert murdoch would ever put Ukrainian sovereignty and lives over his bottom line, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with you. It was just a, just a very strange confluence of events. I wonder, 
what more we're going to learn if, if Prince Harry goes through with this case? Because it, it seems like Harry's in a place where he's not looking for a big settlement. Yeah. He's looking to punish these papers. I, I have to say, like, if there's something you have to say for Harry, like he's just willing to burn it all down, you know? And I, I do think his rage is like well targeted at the uglier aspects of tabloid media, you know, like, yeah, for sure. And if I were advising him, what I'd say too, is like, don't like focus, don't, don't attack the entire media, you know, like, cause sometimes he slips into this, like everybody who's in the, in the media, everybody who's a journalist, like he is, yeah. is like in his crosshairs, like, no, pick the egregious examples of tabloid filth, like voicemail hackers and just go all in against those guys, you know, because um, he'll get the attention if he does it. And hopefully it can curb the excesses in like what is legitimately a gross tabloid culture in the UK. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, Ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. 
you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out. We've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. So, Ben, Turkey has uh, a presidential and parliamentary elections coming up on May 14th. President Tayyip Erdogan is hoping for a a coronation like his buddy King Charles, but he's facing a tough challenge from this kind of low-key opposition candidate named Kamal Kilicdarulu. Uh, Erdogan is facing general political headwinds that are pretty serious. Turkey was hit with this catastrophic earthquake in February. The government response was abysmal. That came on top of runaway inflation that reached as high as 85% in Turkey. Erdogan has been around, he's been president since 2014. He was prime minister from 2003 to 2014. He was the mayor of Istanbul in the late 90s. So he's like been the face of uh, Turkish politics for a very long time. He owns these political problems in, in a big way. And the coalition of opposition parties that oppose him argue that he has harmed Turkey's democracy and the economy by basically being an authoritarian. And they want to, they have promised to return Turkey to a parliamentary system and undo this power grab Erdogan executed in 2018 to give himself more control. So, you know, these two candidates are very different. Erdogan, he's like, you know, been this on the scene for decades in power. He's seen as authoritarian. He's pissed off a bunch of other countries in the region by supporting Islamist parties. Kilic Darulu is this former economist, kind of low-key guy with a record of a, as a corruption fighter who's trying to hold together a weird, motley, diverse coalition mm. of these six opposition parties. If elected, he's promised only to serve one term. So obviously this election is important for Turkey's future. It's important for NATO. It's potentially important for the European Union. On Sunday, Erdogan announced that Turkey's intelligence forces had killed the leader of ISIS in Syria. This was very random and weird. Um, you know, he made this announcement after being off the campaign trail for a few days with some illness he described as stomach flu. But then, you know, this opposition coalition reminds me a little bit of the unsuccessful effort to, to defeat Viktor Orban in yes, Hungary. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, how are, you, how are you feeling about the odds of this of this uh, Erdogan losing here? No, that's so interesting you said that because there, there are a lot of commonalities, right? So the Hungarian opposition decided to pool all the parties behind one person and the person they chose was kind of, yeah, low-key, like not a not a hugely charismatic figure. It was more like, let's return to democracy, let's return to normalcy. Right. And that that seemed like an interesting idea. And it it totally didn't work. You know? Um and and so here, I guess the bet is like Erdogan's been around for even longer than Viktor Orban, right? So the bet may be that there's just more fatigue with Erdogan. Keep in mind that like the structural challenges to the system that this guy is talking about, like the return to democracy. Erdogan came up as prime minister back when being prime minister used to be the most powerful role in the Turkish government. Mm -hmm. He then changed the constitution essentially to make the presidency the most powerful office when he became president. And so he's completely rigged this system to suit himself. And he's like caused like there's a little bit more negative impact on 
ordinary Turks and even Hungarians have experienced in the sense that like there's just been this insane runaway inflation largely because of mismanagement. This isn't like the normal European cost of living crisis. This is like Erdogan right, doing right. crazy shit with the economy. So I guess the bet is Erdogan is more autocratic. He's been around for longer. People are more tired of him. The economy's really in the shitter. And if we just have this kind of guy that can unite these different factions, present himself as like basically the opposite of Erdogan. He's not a cult of personality. He's like a more reserved personality who will return things to democracy. That that, that might pull things together. And and like this, keep in mind, like this is a coalition that's going to include everybody from kind of like the Istanbul cosmopolitan types to like Kurdish uh, voters who are like right. uh, obviously turned off by er- Erdogan's approach in those areas. You know, it's worth a shot. I, I do. I kind of just feel like the the hungry example, which kind of sits in my mind, just because we followed that election closely, is like you, you might want a little more kind of charisma and energy from the opposition, like you know, a little more vision um, articulated for the future. But um, it's going to be a real choice for Turks. I mean, they they can see where Erdogan's leading them. It's not great. Um, there's this person basically pledging to like unite the rest of the country who are not Erdogan like dead-enders uh, in a return to democracy. And, you know, it'll be a real test. I mean, the test one is, does Erdogan allow for a free election or do we see right. kind of right. incidents of fraud or intimidation or efforts to control the outcome? Then the second thing is just like whether this kind of message can work, you know, because it, it, it didn't work in Hungary, but obviously Turkey's quite different country than Hungary. Yeah, fingers crossed, and we'll be watching this one in the next couple of weeks. A few more updates, Ben, on the uh, the hundreds of documents leaked onto the social media site Discord by an Air National Guardsman named Jack Teixeira. So we now have learned that Teixeira's job in, in that the job of about 1,200 people on his base in Massachusetts was to support the Pentagon's drone programs around the world. A bunch of outlets uh, did deep dives into uh, to share his job and how the military drone program has expanded since 9-11, where there were about, I think, 200 drones in service in 2001 to 11,000 in the U.S. military in 2019 when Teixeira joined, and how the Air National Guard units like the 102nd Fighter Wing in Massachusetts now are like more actively in support of that drone program. So in short, 9-11 and the global war on terror is why Teixeira had access to the materials that he leaked. We know, I know that for sure. In terms of the reporting on the leaked documents themselves, the Washington Post ran a piece about how the U.S. found evidence that the Chinese government was continuing construction on a military facility in the United Arab Emirates, despite the UAE claiming to have halted it because of U.S. concerns. This information was part of this, like I think, a, a broader intel report on China's efforts to build military bases overseas. The concern is that you know China could use these installations to monitor or interfere with U.S. naval movements or whatever, I think the Chinese respond like, hey, you guys have hundreds of bases abroad. We're trying to have like five. Can everyone chill out, please? But anyway, no surprise there. But Ben, stepping back, like it is fascinating to me how often the UAE is popping up in these leaks so far. Uh, The reputation that the UAE has bought in Washington with investments, uh, by buying lots of arms, by having kind of a glitzy ambassador who knows everyone at Morning Joe uh, and throws parties. It's very different than the reality that's being laid out in these documents. It's, it's notable. Yeah, I, I, 
I'd say so. I mean, first of all, the drone thing is is interesting because to me, like it explains a lot. And you're right. Like there's a war on terror origin story here. And, and just to be clear, like not all these drones are like the drones that people have in their minds that take out terrorists. I mean, we do a ton of, you know, surveillance reconnaissance in the air with drones. Right. Yeah, um, most are unarmed. But I still like don't understand why that would require this guy to be like reading essentially General Milley's briefing book. So like, it's just, it still like feels yeah. like an unanswered question to me. Like there's just got to be For a way sure. to compartmentalize these systems. But the UA thing is like super noteworthy to me because part of what, again, we are learning from these leaked documents is what are the priorities of the US intelligence community? And those priorities reflect things that they're seeing that like worry them. You know, like, so back when I was an intelligence consumer, you were an intelligence consumer, like if something you, you could kind of tell something was wrong somewhere if you started to get like a lot of intelligence reports about it it's like this is their way of warning you like mm -hmm. hey this is not going in the right direction and everything we're seeing from this uae stuff is suggesting that they're just not on the level you know that because it's a chinese building it's a chinese building a military installation it's the russians thinking they can literally enlist the emiratis to their side um in spying on the united states um, like these are not like small deviations from Washington foreign policy. And we pointed this out before, but it, like the point is there is a massive influence operation from the Emiratis on the American establishment and the American elite. And, and it's every faction of that elite, right? So it's American businesses that like investments from the Emirati Sovereign Wealth Fund and the fact that the Emiratis are liquid, they can put a lot of money in, in all kinds of things. It's the American national security establishment that, you know, when people are out of government, they do lucrative consulting gigs for the Emiratis or they do lucrative speaking gigs in the Emirates. And it's, as you point out, like, go look at like the history of, you know, who is spotted in Politico playbook. You will find the Emirati ambassador in Washington frequently in, you know, Cafe Milano, you know, like the kind of yep, gross always. Georgetown hangout of the Washington elite or like throwing birthday parties for like American media personalities. Um, or I'm sure he was all over the Washington Correspondence Center. And like, th there's just such a coziness and chumminess between the American establishment and the Emiratis. And meanwhile, underneath the hood, while that's happening, the Chinese are building like military bases or at least what could become military bases. And, and the Russians feel like they have a potential partner in the Emiratis. Like, Something is happening here. The intelligence community seem to be trying to warn policymakers of this, and it will be interesting to see like what becomes of uh, of of this information being public, or whether it just kind of conveniently gets kind of you know cast aside uh, by people in Washington who don't want to believe that the Emiratis are anything other than you know the people that throw nice parties and say the right things, and um, you know uh, like we. we we build up into these close uh, partners and allies. Uh, I <laughs> remind me of a funny story. I was like so bad at interacting with that kind of like, yeah, cool, more adult class of people that I actually got seated. Like one of the years I went to the White House Correspondence Center is like 2010. I think me and Favreau went with like Politico. We were at the, we happened to be at the same table, and I think we were supposed to be seated around Yusuf Alitaiba, the ambassador yeah. of the UAE. And we switched the place cards <laughs> so that we could kind of like sit on our own in the corner <laughs> and just like slam drinks instead of talking to this guy, which yeah. is a very childish thing to do. But I don't regret it at all. Uh, um, especially because he was he, he was hugely <laughs> like. I mean, I said to Yusuf Alitaiba, who didn't I didn't like Obama. I, well, he did not like Obama. But I remember saying to him at like one point because I, I think this is an important point. Like, 
I kind of don't blame him, right? Like that's his job, right? Like he's the, very good at his yeah, job. Yeah, I I said to him once, I you know, like you're because I, I used to get these arguments with him, but I'm like you're you're doing your job and you're doing it really well. Like it's on us, it's on Americans. Like right. of course, foreign ambassadors want to come here and like get build influence, right? So this is like ultimately this comes back to whether like people in Washington care more about like you know preserving a certain social scene then they care about national interest you know let's go I, and we also the, the the press corps obviously kind of takes the bait on blaming the u.s for like other oh, countries yeah. foreign policy yeah. decisions so like this washington post story included this graph an emirati political analyst said the uae began exploring other security partners after what the nation saw as america's slow response to missile attacks against abu dhabi by iranian-backed houthi rebels in yemen and it's like guys you, by all means, hedge your bets, you know, like you're going with the Chinese, going with the Russians if you want, UAE. But China's not going to fight your fucking war in Yemen for you. So I, no. I don't know what you think this quote does to advance the story. Well, and before that, it was the Iran deal. And before that, it was like Mubarak and Egypt. Like there's always something that it's the yeah. U.S.'s fault that like are we we're forcing the royal family of the Emirates to become autocratic. You know, like they that's yeah, like exactly. they, they always have been like they just uh uh, so yeah, I, like the, the blame America for, uh, what other countries choose to do thing, you know, always great. And, and even more so in this case, it's a little much, let's just allow every country some agency. Yeah. Um, one uh, alliance that seems pretty solid at the moment, Ben is the U S and South Korea. So president Biden welcomed president Yoon of South Korea to the white house last week for a state visit. The key deliverable from their meeting was basically to reaffirm the U.S. security guarantee for South Korea in the face of continued North Korean aggression and their nuclear program and their missile program, et cetera. And there was a specific promise for more consultation with South Korea about strategy on nuclear weapons use, which was billed as this big deliverable. And I'm like, I, yeah, I guess. But like, I, I would hope we wouldn't nuke the shared peninsula uh, they live on without talking to the, to the rocks first. But anyway. Um, <laughs> hell of a lot better than them developing nukes on their own, I guess. Yes. But so this seemed like a bit of a repackaging of current policy. But what stole the show in Washington was when President Yoon took the mic at the state dinner and decided to sing. Here's a clip. February made me shiver with the paper I deliver. Bad news on the doorstep. I couldn't talk one more step. I can't remember if I tried when I read about his widow bride. Something touched me deep inside the day the music died. <laughs> uh, I can't imagine having the guts to grab the mic in front of the president of the United States, a bunch of fucking fancy people at a state dinner, essentially go a cappella. Until the Marine Band kind of comes in with a little bit of keys to help him out, singing American Pie there. But apparently it's his favorite song. Biden gave him a signed guitar. I don't know. Gutsy move. I mean, there's a great karaoke culture in South Korea. We, I, let's be clear. Like I myself. Oh, yeah. Have you and I have participated. Yeah. In yeah. It. Like uh, you and I have Yokohama. Certain night in Yokohama comes to mind. And uh, oh, yeah. where was it? 2010. Um, and uh, I just want to say, though, that like. Look, I like American Pie as much as the next guy. I'm not sure that that's that's not my karaoke go to. You know, the it's a little like, too slow. Not, it's not a lot of energy there. You know, like it's not like uh, it's not energy, and there's not like irony, right? Because when I go slow karaoke, I go like Greatest Love of All by Whitney Houston or like Patience mm -hmm. by Guns N' Roses. Okay, yeah. I mean, I, the guy has some game. I mean, what do you think? He's got pipes. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Now listen, look, Don McLean is uh, uh, you know 
singular uh, person in terms of songwriting, but that was a pretty good rendition, I thought. I, I, yeah, for Head he, of State? He hung in there for Head of State. I, I certainly never saw anything quite like that. Um, uh, the only time I, I saw something kind of that crazy was uh, at the uh, ASEAN dinner in Indonesia in 2011 when Quincy Jones got up and sang, uh, we are the world and invited Obama and um, the Chinese premier to join him on stage and singing that. And, <laughs> I remember and, that. And, and let's just say they didn't get on stage. But look, I mean, to be serious for a moment, like the this stuff matters, the symbolism of seven years of the South Korean alliance. There, there's always political division in South Korea about the alliance. There are people there that kind of don't like the heavy, you know, the, the heavy footprint of the U.S. military, people there that uh, obviously like feel like China is right next door and maybe we should be drawing closer to them. Um, and so like you you constantly have to tend to this alliance and uh, it was important to have that kind of state visit. I do agree with you, like the, the nuclear thing felt kind of like, you know, we, we kind of put a label on something that we already do, right? Which is consult with them about right. nuclear use on the Korean Peninsula. What I take away from that is two things. One, as you reference, like a, a slight concern that if the South Koreans feel like they can't really count on us and they don't know where this is going and people like Trump are crazy and um, that maybe they could get their own nuclear weapons, which technologically they could probably figure out how to do pretty fast. And so I think this was an effort to try to like mitigate those impulses in South Korea. Um, and also just like a sense that like, you know, there's an understanding that in South Korea, people are looking at this and thinking, you know, is this the best long-term bet for us or should we make our own kind of deals with China, you know? And right now you have a conservative president in South Korea, an unpopular one, uh, but I think it's smart to try to like hug them as, as tight as we can. And and I think we should substantively consult more with them on all this stuff. So there's a feeling of equal partnership in the in the relationship. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a pretty good a little uh, life hack there from President Yoon. If you're going to Washington and your deliverable is some scary nuke thing yeah. and uh, all the questions yeah. coming in are about why the Americans spied on you so much, you just start singing just and that's sing. all that yeah. anyone's going to focus on. That'll be on. the story. That's how, uh, yeah, that's, that's exactly story. right. Uh, the person who could have taken this advice, Ben, is Ron DeSantis, who has been uh, traveling abroad, has not gone great. So Politico interviewed some business leaders who went to a dinner he attended with him in London here are some of the quotes. Uh, he definitely looked spent, but his message wasn't presidential. He was horrendous. One said it was low <laughs> wattage uh, and that nobody in the room was left thinking this man is going places. It felt a bit like we were watching a state level politician. I wouldn't be surprised if people came out thinking that's not the guy. There wasn't any stardust. It felt like the end of an overseas trip, which it was. <laughs> so... <laughs> You, you and I talked last week about Ron's specific itinerary, like why do you go to Japan, South Korea, the UK, and Israel? Technically, it was called a trade mission, but everyone knows he was campaigning. My question today is, after watching this thing, is is the juice worth the squeeze on these trips? I mean, to the extent anyone is talking about this trip, it was the weird reaction he had in Japan. It was how bad this meeting was in the UK. It was how pissy he seemed at the press conference in Israel. There's now a big controversy in Florida about who the hell paid for his flights because he won't release uh, the donors who paid for this private charter flight he took, which must have cost like half a million to a million dollars. So I, like, I obviously care a lot about foreign policy. Like, I think when you're running for president, it's actually unquestionably the 
the place where you have the most freedom to act. So we should really vet these things. But if I was advising a candidate, I don't think I would advise them to go overseas. I'm just like not sure it's worth it. Where do you, yeah. where do you land? Uh, definitely not. I mean, first of all, like for him to like whiff in the UK like that, I mean, he was meeting with like business leaders. Like these people want Ron DeSantis to be good, right? Like the reason <laughs> right. those quotes matter is like these people are basically Republicans. Like they're Tories. It's your base. You know? Yeah. Yeah. They're base. They're like rich British banker type guys, right? They don't like Trump. They think Trump is weird and a little crazy and like what they feel uncomfortable about America about. But Ron DeSantis, these guys desperately wanted him to be good. They want like a you know, more country club kind of Republican that they recognize show up and tell them it's all gonna be okay and we'll just cut taxes and regulations like we used to. And the fact that he fucking whiffed this hard with like what should be his like base, like in the entire world, Ron DeSantis's base should be a bunch of like Eden educated, Oxbridge educated, rich white guys in London, you know? And like the fact that these guys are like just like throwing haymakers at him after he was there, like he must have just totally fucked it up. And you're right about these trips. I mean, again, like this is a bit of an Obama derangement syndrome because there there wasn't really a tradition of like candidates going on foreign trips like this high profile. And then Obama kind of crushed it in 2008. I mean, I'm here, Tommy, like I said, like I can throw a rock and 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 hit the place where like 250,000 Germans were in the streets and he was meeting with foreign leaders and that was like undeniably like a boost to him. And you've seen these Republicans try to replicate this. Mitt Romney disastrously like flubbing his way through uh, the UK and Israel and Poland, like up to DeSantis. Like I don't, I don't get what these people think they're achieving. They're they're, they're like playing at being president. They're like, you know, maybe they want to go see BB in Israel, but you could just meet BB when he comes to the US. Like I don't, I have no idea what the hell Ron DeSantis is thinking. Like other than the fact that yeah. Ron DeSantis seems to look in the mirror and see President DeSantis and. Apparently, nobody else really does. And like DeSantis, even in Israel, kind of rolled into a, a giant constitutional crisis. Sure. I think Kevin McCarthy is there now uh, undercutting Joe Biden, saying it's disgusting that he hasn't invited Bibi Netanyahu to Washington yet, and like, yeah. a, which is absurd given what they're going through. Um, and even, But even that Obama trip, which I think unquestionably went well, the minute we got back, the... Um, the McCain campaign greeted us with this big ad campaign comparing Barack Obama to Paris Hilton yeah, yeah. and just calling him a celebrity who likes, you know, needs big crowds. And it, it like, I don't think it was a good attack, but it, it worked. reframed the debate. Yeah. It got in our yeah. heads, you know? No, that's right. It, it kind of worked like for them. It kind of blunted the momentum. And but just even that goes to show you like Obama executed that trip. Like, and I wouldn't say this about everything we did, but like he didn't make any mistakes and he basically got endorsed by multiple world leaders and he gave a speech right. to 250,000 people. And even that, like McCain campaign, you're right. Like he's the world's biggest celebrity, but is he ready to lead? I remember that was the ad. And it kind of like the press was ready for that narrative. They're like, oh yeah, why was he out of the country? Like, I don't get these trips. I, I Other than placating the size of these guys' egos, like I don't, I don't really know what they're accomplishing. I don't either. I don't either. Yeah, you're, you're right though. I do think it sort of boils down to like, looking in the mirror and seeing a president and deciding that the yeah. way to do that is to be on the world stage yeah, on a Florida trade mission. <laughs> well, did, did you notice like Trump years, like the, the Trump family seemed to kind of like their favorite part of being president was like, just like knowing these world leaders, you know, like Jared and Ivanka mm -hmm. would show up at all these summits and Trump sure. loves to this day, Trump is still talking about how top of the line, all these autocratic buddies of his were like, there's something like for all the Republican xenophobia, there's some weird 
you know, complex about foreign leaders and stuff that like get like more than Democrats. They're, they they like get they get like a little too excited about you know, about this stuff, you know. Yeah, little too excited. Uh, okay, let's take a quick break, uh, and when we come back, you will hear my interview with Deputy National Security Advisor Mike Pyle. So stick around for that. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. I am excited to welcome to the show today, President Biden's Deputy National Security Advisor, Mike Pyle. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tommy. It's great to be here. It is great to see you again. So I'm very excited to talk to you today about this major economic speech that Jake Sullivan, uh, President Biden's National Security Advisor, delivered last week about the administration's international economic agenda. But I did want to start with a quick but very important message to sort of set the tone for the rest of our conversation today. So here we go. Hey, Mike, it's Joe Biden. Look, I know that Jake told you to stick to the talking points, but here's the deal. I'm your boss's boss, and I'm overruling him. If we want to build a relationship with this podcast from the bottom up and the middle out, you have to leak all the good shit to Tommy, the Discord documents, the folder in my desk about aliens, Bill Burns's email password, and even the spare Chinese spy balloon we keep in the EEOB. If you refuse, I will send you to the Commerce Department, and I mean that literally. See you in the sit room, kid. Does that work for you? Are we clear? I'm in. I'm in. I take instruction well. As a national security guy, does it concern you that I can pay $5 a month to clone the president of the United States' voice in a way that sounds pretty convincing? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, technology is going to all sorts of interesting places, which of course does actually speak to, you know, some of our approach to China and some of the worries that we have. So we we can get to that a little bit into the conversation as well. Excellent pivot. Okay, let's talk about Jake's speech. So um, he said a bunch of interesting things that were, I think, designed to kind of break with what was the old Washington consensus about international economics and trade. For example, you know, the idea that that free trade is just inherently good or that economic integration necessarily leads to better behavior among partners. Um, He also argued that we need to take the threat from climate change and economic inequality seriously enough to really fundamentally change our strategies to focus on those issues, Um, a focus on domestic supply chains. Like what what was the message 
you guys wanted listeners to take away from this speech and why have uh, the national security advisor deliver it versus, I don't know, the treasury department? Sure. So, you know, first of all, I, I think if you should see Jake's speech as really part of a, of a, of an arc in some sense, you know, Brian Deese, my former colleague and friend gave a series of speeches last year, really describing our approach on domestic economic policy uh, around a modern American industrial strategy. And there's also always been an international component to what it meant to execute on exactly that strategy. And so Jake's speech was really, you know, an effort to complete that cycle, complete that thought, describe the ways in which investing here at home uh, also has a really important international component and how our strength uh, domestically can work alongside the strength of our allies and partners uh, to lead to a, a more prosperous, more stable world. So the, the the elephant in the room, I think, in a lot of these discussions and, and Jake's remarks was China. In this speech, Jake said, uh, quote, we are competing with China in multiple dimensions, but we are not looking for confrontation or conflict. We're looking to manage competition responsibly and seeking to work together with a China where we can. President Biden has made it clear that the U.S. and China can and should work together on global challenges like climate, macroeconomic stability, health security and food security. So you know, I'm I'm outside of government. I'm just like an observer of these debates now um, from afar. I can imagine, um, though, how, you know, Jake's very kind of nuanced pitch there might not sound as as nuanced to a Chinese audience, not because of anything Jake said, but because most of the things you hear from Washington are about, you know, kind of containment, fighting for influence with China in places like Africa. You've got Republican members of Congress like raging that we didn't blow up the spy balloon fast enough. How do you guys make sure that the cooperation piece of the relationship with China, that message gets through to them and that those talks actually happen? Well, I'd say first, something you heard from Jake last week, but something you also heard from Secretary Yellen the week before when she gave a very significant speech about our economic relationship with China was just a very clear statement that, you know, we're not looking to decouple from China. That is neither the intent nor the effect of uh, our economic approach to uh, the People's Republic of China. For example, you know, if you look at uh, the 2022 trade data, you would see that 2022 was a record year for trade between the United States and China. Uh, again, you know that continues to be a very strong, a very substantial uh, trade relationship, and reflective of an approach that isn't at all about um, that isn't about you know decoupling the two economies in a, in a broad sense. Now, what is our policy to China about? You know, I think Jake said it well too. It's about de-risking. It's about being sure that, um, you know, in places like uh, our clean energy future, in places like uh, like semiconductors, in spaces like battery technology, that we are not reliant, nor are our allies and partners reliant uh, on, on China for those inputs, for those industries of the future. Uh, that is a vital interest of ours, and that's why, whether it's the Inflation Reduction Act or CHIPS or the infrastructure law, we're making major investments in ourselves and, and asking our allies and partners to do the same to make sure that we're not uh, reliant, that we are de-risked uh, vis-a-vis the Chinese economy. Last point, you know, 
while we're not for uh, broad-based decoupling, while there continues to be a, a substantial trade relationship between the two economies, and we expect to see that going forward, you know, when it comes to uh, a targeted set of the most critical technologies that feed directly into military and surveillance modernization that go to our core national security interests, those are places where uh, we're going to build you know, a, a, a tall fence around uh, a small yard to protect those technological advantages, both uh, for ourselves and our allies and partners, so we don't compromise our national security interests. So bottom line, you know, there continues to be a substantial economic relationship between the two countries, which we expect to continue. But we do think we need to de-risk. And we do think that with respect to those most sensitive technologies, you know, we need to be uh, using our toolkit to prevent those from, uh, from, from, from leaking uh, overseas. So I, I totally hear you on, you know, from the administration's perspective, the goal is not decoupling. I do wonder, though, sort of like about the Chinese audience or, or you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party, how they might hear it. And when they, you know, they see the tariffs or they see uh, the U.S. banning the export of certain advanced technologies or the the treatment of a big you know, state connected telecom company like Huawei and trying to keep them out of certain markets. And I just wonder if you guys ever worry that one day the Chinese might wake up and say, okay, well, you're doing this to us. We're going to retaliate and, and sort of kick the crown jewel of your economy, Apple, for example, out of Foxconn and, and no longer allow you to manufacture phones there. Is there any concern about like economic retaliation of that sort? What I would say is, you know, I think we have very substantial concern with respect to you know, the set of policies that you know, China has been undertaking for you know, a number of decades now that disadvantage American industry and more to the point, American workers. Uh, there has been a very concerted effort uh, to subsidize, to distort uh, global markets, you know, like for steel, like for aluminum, like for basic manufactured goods that have, you know, meant that, you know, American workers have uh, been left behind by virtue of China's efforts to tilt the playing field in a direction. Moreover, if you look at some of the steps that we've seen uh, just recently, you know, I think a very uh, concerning set of announcements uh, with respect to uh, Micron, a very important uh, American technology firm. There too, we're just seeing uh, evidence that uh, China's willingness to uh, throw its weight around to uh, try to coerce companies and countries. Uh, you know, that's uh, very concerning and something that, you know, we're working very closely with our allies and partners to uh, take steps against. I noticed, you know, you guys are sort of laying out this um, multiple pillars of this sort of effort to compete with China. Uh, President Macron of France went to China recently, had meetings with Chinese President Xi Jinping, got kind of the like red carpet treatment, you know, lots of photo ops, et cetera. A lot of people in Washington, um, seemed pretty pissed off about Macron's trip to China and that diplomacy. Did that bug you guys? Did, it, did you see it as undercutting you know, these efforts that Jake laid out in this speech? We have had a very constructive relationship across the G7. I think this is a moment of you know, really historic unity uh, across, the, across the G7 economies and, and, and the G7 leaders. Obviously, risen to uh, the moment to align around uh, an approach on, on Russia's brutal evasion 
but I think beyond that, uh, you really see a historic unity uh, of purpose around a range of other issues too, like uh, the clean energy transition, like energy. But I think importantly, and I think you'll see this uh, coming out of the the meeting of the, the G7 leaders later this month in Hiroshima, Japan, I think also importantly, uh, unity and alignment when it comes to uh, an approach on China. Again, I think, you know, when we, when, when, when Jake, when Secretary Yellen speaks about an approach that isn't about decoupling, but, but rather is about de-risking, well, that's, you know, language that was first used by European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, uh, really echoes what we've heard uh, across uh, Europe from uh, a range of the, the major member states there. Uh, similarly, we think that when it comes to uh, protecting uh, the most sensitive technologies that have uh, national security import, when it comes to uh, investing in ourselves uh, and our, suppl- on our supply chains to make sure that we uh, maintain resilience, that we maintain uh, a strong uh, industrial capacity on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, across the Pacific and Japan. These are things that really align our approaches, that really define our collective approach on China. And I think you'll hear uh, that unity uh, later this month at the G7 summit. You, you guys, you've mentioned in this conversation, and Jake talked a lot in the, the speech about climate change and the need to shift to green technologies and, and green tech supply chains that shift will create a huge need for a bunch of rare earth minerals that go in electric vehicle batteries. One of those minerals is cobalt. Um, 70% of the world's cobalt is produced or mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo. There are really well-documented and and horrible human rights problems around that mining. There's child labor, there's dangerous working conditions. How do you think the US or, or how can the administration compete for these materials and, and complete the green transition that we need to complete without contributing to the exploitation and suffering of, of workers who are extracting those minerals for the world? Sure. I, I'd make, you know, a couple of points. One, you know, partly we're going to invest in our own capacity here at home. You know, if you look at the Inflation Reduction Act, you look at the in- infrastructure law, you know, those include uh, significant steps to invest in our own capacities here at home around critical minerals, around the uh, inputs and the materials that w- will be required to power uh, the clean energy economy. So it, it, it begins here at home. But, you know, I think it's also correct that um, to meet the scale of the challenge that the clean energy transition asks of us, it's going to require... Um, you know, sources of those uh, inputs that, you know, come from beyond our borders. Uh, It's going to require inputs that, you know, feed American industry and and put American workers to work uh, from, you know, beyond our shores. Uh, And so, you know, what has our approach been there? Well, it starts with working alongside like-minded allies and partners uh, to be sure that we have a collective approach on what it means to uh, have really high standards, whether it be really high labor standards, whether it be really high environmental standards, whether it be standards, you know, to put a fine point on it, things like forced labor uh, in China. Uh, you know, when it comes to uh, when it comes to our approach, it begins with you know working with Japan, working with the EU, working with other like-minded allies to be sure that we approach this question with the highest of standards in mind. That's why, you know, we 
closed a critical minerals agreement uh, between uh, uh, the Biden administration and the Kashida government in Japan last month, why Presidents Biden and von der Leyen announced uh, the initiation of a of a of a critical minerals uh, negotiation uh, in March. Uh, it really is to define this process right out of the gate by saying together we're going to have uh, incredibly high standards when it comes to labor, environment, much else besides. Uh, you've mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act a couple of times. I mean, clear, that's obviously the, you know the cornerstone of the Biden administration's efforts to combat climate change and, and get the investments needed to to make that transition to clean energy. It did seem to upset a lot of our European allies and partners, at least initially, who felt like you know this was sort of modern mercantilism and that they were going to get cut out of tax credits and, you know, essentially the U.S. market for, you know, uh, EVs and other things. Do you, do you guys feel like you've been able to smooth over some of those differences? Are they lingering? Like, what's the status there? Yeah, so I, mean, I think that our message to allies since we passed the Inflation Reduction Act has been pretty consistent. Uh, and that is, you know, we're not backing down. Uh, these are investments that uh, we need to make in ourselves, uh, in our domestic capacity, resilience, uh, inclusivity in our workers. Uh, but we are also not leaving you behind. We want you to join us. More to the point, we need you to join us. Uh, the needs globally around uh, clean energy technology, around uh, renewables, EVs, batteries, much else besides, are basically limitless. And the approach we've taken here at home is to try to meet uh, those needs uh, for ourselves, for the world by investing. And we've asked the rest of the world to invest alongside us. And I think encouragingly, that's what we're you know, really starting to see. You know, the EU uh, put forward the Green Deal industrial plan a couple of months ago. That's advancing towards the finish line. In Europe reflects a similar public investment-led effort to invest in their own clean energy transition. Uh, if you look north of the border to Canada, their most recent budget uh, also included uh, a range of, of incentives and, and subsidies um, modeled on the Inflation Reduction Act. So the president uh, really has been uh, leading the world towards a model of what it means to, to, to manage the, the clean energy transition. Last thing I'll say is, you know, this really was the heart of uh, what uh, President Biden and President von der Leyen of the of the European Commission uh, agreed to uh, at the start of, of March, basically to say, we've got a set of shared goals. We're going to meet the moment on climate. We're going to invest in strong, independent industrial bases on both sides of the Atlantic. We're going to invest together in, in resilient supply chains, and we're going to do those things through a program of public investment. So I think, you know, I definitely was on the receiving end of uh, of, a, of a good deal of, of concern and, and criticism from our European friends across the course of the fall. But I think we've worked really hard to say, no, this is an affirmative source of strength, not just for the United States, but for allies and partners uh, writ large. And together, we're going to have an affirmative approach that invests and builds and manages this transition together for all of our benefit. Um, last question for you, and, and sort of speaking of being on the receiving end of some uh, angry calls. Secretary Yellen is warning that Congress might have only until June 1st to uh, uh, raise the debt ceiling and avert uh, a default. 
are you guys getting calls from from you know ambassadors and foreign heads of state being like, boy, is this thing going to work this thing out? Because if we default on our debt, it will have global ramifications. Well, I would just say we absolutely agree that this is a moment of heightened geopolitical competition. Obviously, the war that Russia has waged against Ukraine, obviously, uh, the heightened competition uh, across the Pacific between uh, between uh, us and, and the People's Republic of China, you know, it would be doing our global leadership, our position in the world, uh, a tremendous harm to uh, to play brinkmanship uh, over the debt ceiling. You know, if you think about, for example, you know, the potency of our economic sanctions against Russia, well, that's predicated on uh, the centrality of the U.S. financial system in the global financial system, which is itself predicated on the full faith and credit of the United States Treasury. And by questioning that, as Republicans would do if they want to uh, play games with the debt ceiling. Uh, that's putting our national security at risk. That's putting our ability to uh, deliver economic sanctions at risk. Uh, that's putting uh, into question whether the United States can be uh, a reliable, trustworthy partner on the global stage, which is playing into uh, the hands of uh, the the Xi's and Putin's of the world. It is uh, absolutely vital that we that we get this um, basic piece of business done, uh, particularly. Uh, at this uh, moment of, of uh, tremendous sensitivity on the global stage. Agreed. It is uh, truly unfortunate that Kevin McCarthy is messing around with this thing. Uh, Mike Pyle, thank you so much for doing the show. Really appreciate it. And if folks want to learn more, they should go read uh, Jake Sullivan's speech at Brookings last week. It's on the website, right? Pretty it is fun. absolutely on the website. <laughs> Whitehouse.gov. Check it out. <laughs> Whitehouse.gov. Check it out. Uh, Mike, thanks again for doing the show. Thanks, Tommy. Be well. Thanks again to Mike for joining the show. Uh, ben, thanks again. What time is it in Germany right now? Like 10.30 p.m.? It's 10.30 and I, I, I like I try to bring my highest energy, but like it's 10.30 and I don't even know like what time I technically woke up this morning, but like uh, it's nice here. I like it. I love You Germany. seem shockingly awake to me if, if we're being honest. And if I were you, I would go get another pint. I'm going to get a pint and, you know, like I, I'm like riding the high of like seeing young i mean i i I'd like to be serious for a moment like it's pretty cool to meet like activists and people running for office and and people fighting the same shit we're fighting right like disinformation yep, and far-right sure. nationalism um here in europe um but you know the challenges are also remarkably similar <laughs> you know like, like it's, that's like the depressing element is like hearing like how common like all the crap is conspiracy theory like some guy was telling me tonight did you hear this there was a big conspiracy theory getting traction on the far right here about how the EU was going to make people eat crickets instead of meat. Did th- did you hear this? I've gotten flavors of this. There's there's a, yeah, it, like it's sort of the AOC Green New Deal cow farts banning meat. Yeah. Like just a, a collection of nonsense about climate change. Right? It's like the globalization of stupid, you know? Um, so that's like the depressing <laughs> part, but it's like good, good to see these uh, people. Um, but yeah, no, like I, I'm, uh, uh, I am looking forward to like another pint and like see if I can make it through the night sleep wise. Yeah, a couple hours of sleep. All right, man. We'll safe travels and uh, talk to you guys next week. 
Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Our associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick, Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Futopoulos are our sound engineers. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Evie Bradford, and Milo Kim, who upload our episodes and videos to YouTube every week. And check out the Pod Save the World uh, YouTube account. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.